Greetings and welcome to Creative State, a podcast about arts, culture and heritage in Washington. My name is Karen Hannan, the Executive Director of Arts War, your Washington State Arts Commission. Our mission is to be a catalyst for the arts, advancing the role of the arts in the lives of individuals and communities throughout the state. I am so glad you've joined us to hear about incredible people and their stories across the great state of Washington. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Creative State. I'm Michael Wallenfels, the Communications Manager for ArtsWA, and your host for the hour. Today, we're going to look at community from three different perspectives, keeping communities strong during the pandemic, forging healthy communities by preserving cultural traditions, and creating community for veterans through music making. While you listen to these conversations, think about your own community. What makes it healthy? What makes it unique? How does it welcome people? And how do the arts weave through it all? Our first conversation is with Akuye Karen Vargas, who won a Governor's Arts and Heritage Luminary Award in 2021. Through her extraordinary community building work on Bainbridge Island, she was able to keep people connected, creative and healthy throughout the early painful days of the pandemic. Before we jump in, a note on content. Akuye shares a story in which she quotes a racial slur that was directed at a member of her family. I'm here with Akuye Karen Vargas. So Akuye, can you please introduce yourself and tell us a bit about who you are and what you do? I understand that you're a very, very busy person. Well, uh, hello everyone. My, my name is Akuye Karen Vargas. I'm not sure. You know, I have a difficult time talking about myself, but I'll do my best on today. And, and so I'm living currently in Kitsap County and I'm doing work with our young people as well as cultural studies and the living arts cultural heritage work that we founded here in Kitsap County. Can you tell us a little bit more about the living arts cultural heritage? I guess I can start um, back in 2003. I founded the Living Life Leadership uh, Initiative, working with our youth and and our parents uh, in Kitsap County. I was doing service learning, uh, leadership development, and social and cultural and emotional competency training with uh, National Youth Leadership in out of Minnesota. We worked with the Search Institute. Uh, um, to really bring a, a diverse, what I would call, cohort of students from around the nation to come together and address some of the um, racial disparities within our nation. And so we had started that work, um, came alongside the Boys and Girls Club that was here on Bainbridge Island, and began to take students there every year. And I would say back in 2011, we continued some of that work, but the Living Arts Cultural Heritage piece was birthed out of that. It was an initiative where our students um, began to, they sought out um, the footprints of African Americans in Kitsap County in order to provide a historical foundation for the roots of African American culture within the community, because they would go and travel around the country, you know, with 
um, the National Youth Leadership. They would go to to um, New York. They would go to Philadelphia. They would go to Washington, D.C., California, and work and do immersive practices in these communities and found out that, you know, um, they would do this work across the nation but wasn't really seeing themselves in their own community. And so they would come back and they would do what they were called taking it back home uh, initiatives in their community, and they wanted to work on something specifically to work with their cultural identity in, in the county. And so that's kind of how the Living Arts Cultural Heritage was birthed. And so some of the students began to do research on their own family trees, and we began to do what we call cultural orienteering by identifying black businesses, the churches, the schools, the leaders throughout Kitsap County in order to enhance the students' cultural awareness and identity. And so that's kind of, you know, the footprints. And and at that point, they did the first naming of Martin Luther King Street in Kitsap County on Bainbridge Island, right, with their school district and worked with the city to make sure that happened. And that kind of was the catalyst for the work that they've been doing up to now. Wow. So speaking of Bainbridge Island, what brought you there? How did you end up in Bainbridge Island? Oh, my gosh. Over 30 years ago, my husband had received orders. We're both military. We come from military backgrounds, our, both our families. Uh, and uh, my husband got orders on Bangor Subbase uh, here in Kitsap County. And we were still back east. And he had said, oh, they've got some housing available on Bainbridge Island. And and then I said, well, just take it. We're ready to come. We're ready to, you know, be a family, be together again. And so um, when he got the housing on Bainbridge, we we got here on Bainbridge Island. And once we got here, we kind of noticed uh, we were like one of the only African-American families in the entire city. And, and it was very challenging for uh, my family and and very challenging for my student, my my young children, and had to to really advocate for them uh, within this community. How does it feel today? I'm curious to hear what it was like then when you first moved, and how how looking at Bainbridge through that same kind of lens feels today. You know, when we first got here, you know, my my children, my oldest was coming home from school and. He was crying and saying, I don't want to be black. And then my middle, uh, my daughter, she, um, I had got a notice from the school district that said that they were putting her in special needs because uh, she wasn't talking, she wasn't engaging. And here it was, you know, my daughter, Miss Chatterbox, can't get her to stop talking. And then my youngest, they, you know, being suspended. And I'm like, how do you suspend and how do you uh, discipline a child in first and second grade? And so I went up to the school district and I, I took my daughter in and I, I said, um, I want to know, you know, exactly um, what are some, you know, why do you want to put her in special needs? What's going on? And then... I, I saw my daughter really 
um, begin to curl in those spaces. And then I I turned to my daughter and I said, Akila, I want you to tell me right now what is going on. And she just burst out crying, said, Mommy, they spit on me. They pull my hair. They call me nigger. And that was um, the beginning of my advocacy work um, with the school district, with the Multicultural Advisory Council, um, and asking them to make sure they're looking at how they're engaging with students of color and begin to do that work with not just for my own uh, child or my own children, but for those children that were being marginalized, that were being racially bullied in those environments. And so I think that began my community engagement as well as my um, advocacy work working with young children. So that brings us to today. And, you know, just this last year, you got recognized with a Luminary Award. The Illuminary Awards were kind of a, a special version of our Governor's Arts and Heritage Awards. They were meant to recognize the artists and cultural organizations that stood as shining lights for their communities during the darkness of the pandemic. So if you can, you know, tell us a bit about what you did during that time. Oh, man. Well, let me start with 2019, because 2019 was very instrumental. We had taken our students um, to do freedom rides um, down in New Orleans. They came back and they launched the freedom schools in Portland, Oregon. And then um, we took some of our students to the 400-year return of enslaved Africans to the Americas. And then we came back and poof, we were thrown into the pandemic. And um, at that time, um, we, we came back, we had lost one of our leaders, Dr. Robertson, and I, I'm kind of getting emotional about that. Um, and, and our whole life um, began to change. And so um, with the loss of, of our spiritual leader, as well as loss as, of loved ones and family members, and then, you know, all of the George Floyd things that popped off, um, we were just thrown into a place of chaos. And, and um, they began to shut down everything. And as they began to shut down everything, we had um, been doing our youth empowerment conference for, for the last, it was three years that we had been into um, providing space for underrepresented, underserved students during their spring break. And and they were like, oh, no, you can't meet. Oh, you got to shut it down. The students had been planning it for about uh, a year. They were into, you know, planning what they wanted their youth empowerment to look like. And and so when they the, the state and our city shut down everything, the students said, no, we, we want to continue. And so... They were maybe the first ones that went virtual. Um, they put on the entire spring break in in a virtual realm for that entire week, and then they they did um, podcasts and um, uh, Facebook lives and and stayed connected. And we would do 
you know, we would meet and do our daily bread. We would uh, do, uh, you know, our daily bread with um, just connecting with the students and making sure that they were all right. We were informing them about the importance of COVID safety practices, dealt with some of their depression and their anxieties. And it was just, um, it was just a, a tumultuous time um, to to be able to to really meet the needs, you know, our families that were needing food. We began to do um, food outreach pieces for our students and, and really wanted to stay connected with not just the students, but we know that most of our parents that was still in the workforce um, and our students that was at home. So we began to do what we call our home run check-ins and, and making sure our students stay safe. And so that's just some of the things that, that we were dealing with and, and wanted to really just deal with the, the loss that was happening within uh, our African-American community. So what did it mean for you to receive this award? Wow. <laughs> you know, when, um, when they called me, to tell me that I had received the award, I didn't know. I, I was, I just cried. I was speechless. Number one, and then I, you know, I thought about you know my mentor and my my pastor who who had labored for over forty years to to be able to build a center, the New Life Community Development Center, that would help us to to bring uh, those communities that was that didn't have the resources to a place where where their health needs, their educational needs and their community was really being supported in a way with economic development and those things and and um you know was really just, you know, in a place where, I don't know, it just, it was just overwhelming for me. In the segment on your work in the Governor's Arts and Heritage Luminary Awards presentation, one of the things that gets talked about is the things you did around the arts and self-care. So I'm curious, what, what do you see as the relationship between arts and self-care? Oh my gosh. Um, they are interdisciplinary. You know, our health and well-being comes out through our song, our dance, our our expressions to be able to to use art as a form of healing as well as a form of, of unity and reconciliation. And we we were intentional about um, working collectively with the Bainbridge Island Museum of Arts, and and the young people were creating their own um, book. They were doing book arts, and they were meeting with artists, Amos Kennedy, that was doing printing and expressing their words, and and then we would do uh, cultural events at the community just to pull the community together, even if it was with celebration and with honoring and doing exhibits around um, the history and footprints of 
African Americans and doing weaving histories and the celebration of hidden histories and in search of identity and all of those things we we were very creative in doing them in art forms and 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 being able to use music and art and and weaving them in and out and and really to engage the community in a unifying way, to be able to come and celebrate across barriers and to be able to to understand that, you know, all of this work could really transcend social, cultural, and racial, and even economic lines. And so uh, we began to break them down and cultivate and build relationships across barriers which, uh, create a stronger community and improves lives for everyone. That seems to touch on something that's that's central to your work, and that's you know work around social justice. How how do you see the arts and culture serving social justice? Oh man, we saw you know, art as an opportunity to address some of the social ills of some of the racial injustices. We began to do work um, with our Kitsap E-Race Coalition. We partnered with community members and built a coalition that would address some of the racial injustice. We wanted equity, so we we began to to work with the equity, race, and community engagement and what that looked like uh, with multiple sectors within our community. And so we begin to bridge, you know, some of those things. You know, we had teams that worked with our government, teams that worked with our our school districts, teams that work with law enforcement, and teams that work with our faith base, and then. The one that held it all together was the community engagement team that say, you know, how can we create events and create um, different activities to be able to engage the community with with these issues that we can really transform our communities in a way using art and using a way to do collective work and and we did uh, initiatives like Move and Be Moved. We would use poetry. You know, they would do poetry slams, and they would do different spoken word, and 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 even um, they even did dodgeball. They even did dodgeball tournaments. When we can be creative like that, I think that that we can really transform our communities. Tell us a little bit more about about community. You know, what are some of the important ways that you connect with Bainbridge oh, Island? Oh wow! Well, you know, one of the ways that we've always connected with Bainbridge Island was through our school district, through our community events, um, through the Bainbridge Island Museum of Arts. Um, we would be intentional about putting on events that really empower the community to come and and be a part of community building, you know, with our Martin Luther King assemblies in the schools, our cultural celebration in community and in the schools. And then at the Bay Magellan Museum of Arts, we would do our Martin Luther King community celebrations, our, our Black History Month celebrations, and, and we would set the tone for uh, soirees and, and community engagement and conversations. These are different ways to be able to 
to reach out to community organizations and businesses to come into a space and and maybe have those challenging conversations to be able to to learn and undo some institutionalized things as well as be a model and use these initiatives as catalysts for change. And, you know, one of the things that our young people always say is that nothing changes until you do, and and that change starts right here in our communities. What kind of advice do you have for, for people, for organizations, nonprofits, who want to use the arts to help their communities? Well, one of the things that, that we we would hope is that through these art forms, they really can break down barriers and build community, you know, and bring awareness and and be able to, what I would say, inspire, engage, inform, and even empower opportunities. And, you know, and it creates opportunities for all of our communities to thrive. And so we always work off of that EIEIO model. And and that is to inspire, to educate, to inform, empower, and then create opportunities. When we can look at does this work intentionally in empowering all of our community members, how are we educating and informing, and how does it, you know, how does it actually, um, can you use a tool like this to actually transform some historical harm as well. And so we we just continue to work and hope that um, when we look back, we see the seeds of change, and we do. And so we, we stay the course. Talking about looking back, why don't we look ahead for a second? What's coming up next for you, Akuye? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, what's coming up next for us is we're doing healing circles. Um, culturally relevant, healing, engaging our community, and we do those every month. We do what we call our, you know, our G-team, which is our give-back team. We always, at Evergreen, we always ensure that we are giving back to the community because our model there is we enter to learn and we depart to serve. So we always look at how we're giving back. And so right now, this year is a year that we're working intentionally on truth and reconciliation, healing, doing heart-to-heart healing, healing our holidays. We started with that, and then we worked into healing hearts, you know, our our community engagement pieces with our youth empowerment, and now we're moving into our healing hearts with with our elders as well as our women and then our brother-to-brother, boys-to-men activities. So for folks who want to learn more about you or get involved in some of the things that you're working on, where can we send them? Uh, You can send them to Kitsap E-Race Coalition. You can send them to New Life Community Development Agency. Um, They can um, look and see the work that's being done with Evergreen Tacoma Campus, at the hilltop. You can also look for us on Facebook. I mean, we can be found. We're always being found doing good work. With Kids Up E-Race, our motto is our, we, and us. It's going to take all of us 
and we need to step into this work in order to change all of our lives. And so those are the things that, that we we would hope that we can prick the hearts and the minds of our communities to to really transform and change our nation. And yeah, that's that's my hopes and my desire. I'm just uh, honored to be able to to have the opportunity to share some of the wonderful work that all of our leaders are with the Kitapi Race Coalition and with our community leaders and and with our government to be able to to really come together to work together in a unified collective way for change. Uh, I'm I'm grateful. I'm very grateful. Okuye, I want to thank you for coming on Creative State today. It was really an honor and a pleasure to have a conversation with you about all the incredible work you've been doing. Oh, no, the pleasure is mine. <laughs> You can learn more about Akuye's work by searching Facebook for E-Race, that's E-R-A-C-E, Equity, Race, and Community Engagement, and also by searching for Living Arts Cultural Heritage Project. Next, we're going to speak with Thomas Richardson. Thomas is the incoming director of the Center for Washington Cultural Traditions, the CWCT for short, and his passion for artistic traditions that are woven so deep that they are often hiding in plain sight. Thomas, welcome to Creative State. Take a moment and tell us about who you are and how and why you entered this field. Thank you so much, Michael. My name is uh, Thomas Grant Richardson. Uh, I am the incoming director for the Center for Washington Cultural Traditions which is a partnership between uh, Humanities Washington and Arts Wa. Um, it serves as the state folk life center, which is something that most states have that is kind of charged with the folk and traditional arts uh, of the state. This is what I have uh, training in. I have a, a PhD in, in folklore from uh, Indiana University, and I am just really uh, excited to be uh, serving the residents of Washington and the diverse uh, cultural traditions, as well as, you know, really learning, learning so much about what is going on in Washington. Speaking of Washington, tell us a little bit more about what got you interested in Washington generally and then maybe into Arts Wa specifically. So there's, there's two factors to this. One is that um, I didn't grow up in Washington, but in so many ways, it was kind of my natal home. Uh, I have family. Uh, I grew up in, in, in Utah, but I had family all along the Kitsap Peninsula and in areas of uh, King County. And every summer I would spend the summers in, in Washington. And so it's really a dear place to me. That's the emotional part. Um, the intellectual part is that for the last eight years I've been working as an independent folklorist uh, field worker and consultant, which is, you know, not a job that, you know, uh, I thought I would be able to do for eight years, certainly not a job 
that my parents thought I could do for eight years. In that time, I just saw the lay of the land nationally about these uh, state folk life agencies. And the Center for Washington Cultural Traditions stood out as an exemplar of robust programming and infrastructure and vision. And I knew, you know, even long before the uh, the job came uh, available, I knew that this was going to be a um, a really important place, not only for the the state of Washington, but as a model for the country. So when uh, the job did come uh, available, I uh, I ran at it with everything I had, um, and and feel incredibly fortunate to be to be working there now. We'll have you talk about the center in, in just a minute, but I'm kind of curious if for the folks who don't know, like what might happen in the average day in the life of a folklorist? Sure. So, um, you know, I, if you think about the center as a, as a partnership between ArtsWA and Humanities Washington, it kind of helps to define uh, folklore, which often is the creativity that happens maybe in the cracks you could think of, maybe that doesn't, that, that goes unrecognized and, and unacknowledged. Um, it's the creativity of everyday life. We all are infused with um, folklore and folk life in a way that most people, I would say, don't even realize in those terms. They realize it. They definitely realize it. They just don't, lab- they don't label it that such. This is like how we, I mean, it's how you, it's what food you cook at important events. It's how you get dressed for significant events. It's the music you listen to or play that makes you feel like you're your own person. Um, You know, that makes you feel whole, that makes you feel who you are. And so a big responsibility of a folklorist is to look for those cultural traditions and how they are enacted and then how can they be supported um, and how a, a, something like a state agency could actually help to to support this so a lot of it is um, a lot of it is on the ground work it is meeting people where they live in community because as opposed to something more presentational, like I don't know, like a like a like an like an art gallery or a um, or a concert, um, these can both fall under the rubric of uh, folklore or folk life, but oftentimes they're not necessarily for people outside that community. They're for people who already understand it. So oftentimes it happens in you know in in kitchens, in, in, in living rooms, in, in back porches, in churches, in synagogues, in mosques, in, you know, ball, you know, small town ball fields. Um, so a lot of it is just finding out uh, what is out there, uh, which requires a tremendous amount of field work, um, of which I've done a lot of, and the center has a lot of uh, field workers out there on the ground learning what people are up to, and then just trying to figure out 
how we can help if we can. You know, sometimes we sometimes we can't or they don't need our help, and that's perfectly fine. The great thing about folk life is that it it has an internal engine that you know moves it down the line whether we help or not. Uh, but you know, who who oftentimes there are ways to ways to help and support individual um, artists, and I use that term very liberally, um, artists and, and communities to, to feel more complete and to feel more whole. So let's dig into that help now a little bit. Talk about the Center for Washington Cultural Traditions. What are some of the programs it's doing that you're inheriting from your predecessor? Sure. So, um, so like I said, one of them is just a, a field work survey, which just means that we've got someone out there in the communities, meeting people, talking to them about what they want, what they need. But that's just the first step. That's just the kind of fact finding. Um, I would say one of the central programs is the Heritage Art Apprentice Program, the HAP program, which pairs teams of a master artist, <clears throat> again, using that term fairly liberally, with an apprentice. And these can be a wide range of arts that have, <clears throat> we could call it a heritage component, right? Something that has, has time depth, has cultural depth, and they, you know, they, they, they meet together and just create this kind of, this partnership where they teach this particular art form to an eager apprentice and we support that financially you know we 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 pay we pay them to learn and to teach these art forms and they're oftentimes art forms that need that kind of support because it's it's the kind of thing that don't have classes or or schools for this there's you know um, there, there's generally a, 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 an acknowledgement that the traditional arts happen in very informal spaces, and we are trying to acknowledge that informal space, but also, you know, support it financially and give people some money um, to exist in that informal space. So that's, you know, one of the major programs uh, of the center. We also contribute to uh, other programs, Boats of Artois and of Humanities Washington. And, you know, there's, there, there's always room for, for, for growth and expansion. So we're always looking at new opportunities and from a funding level, but then trying to match that with new uh, and emergent needs of various communities around the state. So do you have any ideas about where you want to take these programs going forward? I do have ideas about where I want to take it. Again, I come at this work from a point of listening and learning first, primarily. Um, so this could always change, but I just see the need for acknowledgement and support of indigenous traditions um, as being paramount to the entire states and really the entire nation's cultural health moving forward. Um, I think we've made in the last five years, there has been a acknowledgement of 
the importance of recognizing um, native traditions. Definitely, I mean, if you just think about the the practice of land acknowledgments, um, that really kind of caught on, you know, within the last five years. But I think it's just the beginning. I think that when we think about, you know, cultural health, if we think about environmental health, if we think about, you know, real sustainability, we need to look to the, you know, original stewards of this land. Those are our native partners and friends. And so I think that uh, the future of the Center for Washington Cultural Traditions is going to be strongly native, but that's not to say exclusively, because uh, we are uh, an egalitarian organization and respect all traditions and all uh, cultural art forms. And so, you know, it's not going to be solely focused, but that's going to be a, a big a big topic for me in, in my pursuit. We're excited to see what you do. Now, I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, that you knew the predecessor, your predecessor at the center, Dr. Langston Wilkins. There's, there's a circle coming around to complete itself It's on some level? There is. Um, I am incredibly fortunate to have known Langston Wilkins for long before he was Dr. Wilkins. He and I went to uh, graduate school together and we we met about 15 years ago and um yeah we 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 bonded early over um a love uh, i i was i was living in la uh when i when i moved to indiana and uh, we bonded early over a love of west coast rap because anyone who knows langston for about five minutes or more knows that he is a major hip hop head. Um, I was not, I was nothing, com nowhere in his league, uh, but we bonded early over hip hop. And uh, I've been fortunate to know him for 15 years and to see him grow and to see him build this incredible uh, program, this incredible center. And um, he's really been so gracious and helpful in helping in the transition for for me to to really make the most of of the work that has already been done we are like you extremely grateful and in awe of the work that dr langston wilkins has been doing and we're really excited to have you on the team before i let you go i've got a, a couple more questions for you and they're kind of about how you know the general population might conceive of folk arts these are words that you said uh kind of circulate and and people might know these things without actually knowing that they know them, but they might have encountered a word like folk arts before. When they hear that, what do you think they might be picturing and what might that picture be missing? That's a really great question. I think that, um, you know, I, I, I often joke that, you know, if people think of folk arts, they might think of banjos and quilts and they would be 100% right. You know, banjos and quilts are great examples of of folk art. Um, they are just the tip of the iceberg, though. Really, folk art is, is defined less about the exact thing it is and more about the way some kind of creativity has manifest within community. And I, I, that can sound a little vague, and I apologize 
but it's really it's really the it's really the manifestation in a creative act that other people recognize without it having to be explained to them it can be the way that you know the way that you make a meal that would make sense for your family but no one else understands it like you don't have to explain it to your family i think that most families have that thing now it's not everything it's not all the things that you like if we just stick with food for a second it's not everything you eat right sometimes we eat food that would not be you know considered a, a terribly creative act you know sometimes we just need nourishment but other times you know whether that is a, a celebratory meal or a commemorative meal you know hey grandma will you make your potatoes or whatever it is the way you make them that that you know and grandma has a way of of making them and you don't have to explain it you just know so that can be that can be uh the way the way it's understood and appreciated but then you know you know banjos and and quilts also have that uh component and i think that the only thing i worry about and this i'm not sure if this is a a, a warranted fear but going on about a hundred years ago uh there was this movement for folk art as two-dimensional uh you know art that hung on a wall that was considered primitive or uh unsophisticated uneducated untrained that's my only concern about the misuse or misunderstanding um of folklore and folk art is that it is uneducated primitive in any other way uh that is derisive i don't know any professional folklorist who thinks of folk art as being you know naive or primitive or untrained it is very much intentional um i think that where the misconnection or the confusion happens is the question is who is it intended for because like i said i think that when the creator creates something for their community and whether their community is large or small it doesn't have to be explained they understand it and they appreciate it and i think that that going back to an earlier question a big role of a folklorist is where we can come in and be uh, a little bit of a translator um not an interpreter uh but just a translator to explain what this means in context um so that would be my only fear about what is missing is that the idea that folk arts are in any way untrained so last thing i'm going to have you do is is make a connection for us show us how cultural traditions connect to healthy communities mm well that's a that's a that's a great question because it gets at the heart of everything that uh, i think that i would say that cold you know healthy communities are by their very nature robust in their cultural traditions i think that is a huge part of what gives communities their strength and and health and that can be that can be both mental and physical in a very 
real way. I mean, the mental health component of feeling recognized, uh, acknowledged, safe, supported, you know, these all things, these are all mental health things that come from practicing these cultural traditions that make you feel like a whole person, that make you feel the person you were put on this earth to be. Um, it is, it defines your physical body as a safe space to, to operate in the world where there you have, you have to, you have to enter a lot of unsafe spaces, right? The world is not always uh, willing to accept people how they are. But I think if you come from a place of great cultural traditions where you feel that um, acknowledgement, you are then, you know, better equipped to enter the big, bad, late capitalist society. Also, I think, you know, in, in a lot of ways, um, physical health is just, is there just as much. Um, there's environmental health. You know, a lot of times the, one of, well, you know, one of the definitions, I shouldn't say definitions, but one of the um, common threads in folk arts is that the materials and the tools that are used to make the things, if we're talking about physical things, often come from the land and from the areas. And so it's also a really important way to watch, you know, environmental degradation and to be very uh, aware of that and what we are losing. And uh, physically, I mean, there's all kinds of uh, important things about uh, about dance and games and uh, activity that could be, you know, hewing logs, uh, carving, paddling, uh, running, that again, just uh, all feed the same wholeness. You know, there's this, uh, a few years ago, I was on the, the Northern Ute Reservation in, in Northeast Utah, and um, I was there for something called the the bear dance, which is their, they refer to it as their uh, New Year's dance, even though it happens in the spring, because they're thinking about like uh, uh, a spring uh, equinox kind of thing. It's like, this is when the bear wakes up. This is when things come back to life. So this is really when the year starts, you know, um, not, not in January. That's still very much, you know, the dead of winter. And people would just talk about the bear dance in very in somewhat vague but somewhat very holistic terms and i heard so many times bear dance is life bear dance is life you know that is what it means to them and it really provides a lot of sustaining energy and then you know the, there's interesting things also there's this traditional stick game that is played for hours on end it's kind of a betting game and a guessing game and it's fun because it incorporates traditional songs and drumming and um, exchange of gifts, they create the hand game in a kind of version of like midnight basketball where they do these long overnight hand games very intentionally to keep teenagers, you know, from getting into trouble, from you know, using drugs and drinking. They want to give them something else to do and it's been a huge success. So um, I'm sorry to go on and on about this, but I think that your question just absolutely nailed
uh, the point that cultural traditions are just infused in what it means to be uh, to be a healthy community. Well, that makes us all the more grateful for the center's existence and for Dr. Wilkins's work and and your work coming forward in the future. Thomas, I want to thank you so much for coming on Creative State today. Uh, thank you so much, Michael. I really uh, pre- appreciate it. To learn more about the CWCT's work, visit WA Culture. That's W A C U L T U R E dot org. To end today's episode, I'll pass the mic to Gabriella Smith, Artswa's Vet Corps Navigator for the Wellness, Arts, and the Military program. Today, she's joined by John Seltzler, the founder of Music Works for Veterans, which you'll learn more about during their conversation and can keep exploring at Music Works for Veterans. That's works for the number four, veterans.org. Before we start the segment, a note of appreciation. Gabriella Smith was recently named Vet Corps Member of the Year by AmeriCorps Washington, and the award couldn't be more deserved. Gabby, congratulations, and thank you for all the work you do in Washington's military-connected community. Okay, on to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to the Wellness Arts and the Military segment on the Creative State Podcast. I'm your host, Gabriella Smith, the Vet Corps Navigator for the Wellness Arts and Military Department. And today our guest is John Selzler, the founder and director of Music Works for Veterans, a 501c3 nonprofit for veterans and community members working with music. So how are you, John? I'm doing very well today. Doing very well. It's great to have you. I just got to say thank you so much for being on the podcast today. You have been a tremendous part of my experience starting out with Artswa for the past eight months. And I feel like we've, you know, we've become friends throughout our time together. So today is about you and Music Works for Veterans. And we're just going to kind of start off with who you are. Okay. Well, again, thank you for having me. And yes, we have become good friends and and I appreciate you. My name is John Selzler and I'm a veteran of the Army and the Air Force, having served a total of 16 years up through the Desert Storm era. And I'm also a musician, songwriter, and also founder of Music Works for Veterans. Wonderful. What is Music Works for Veterans? Music Works for Veterans is a nonprofit project that we currently operate under the 501c3 Veterans Family Fund of America. I began music jams out at the Washington Soldiers Home at their nursing care facility with the concept that I could use my experience as a songwriter and a veteran to connect with fellow veterans and using music as a medium for creative expression. And that was in the fall of 2012. From there, uh, we began hosting music events uh, at American Lake Veterans Hospital. And these are all-inclusive music jam events where we not only just go to perform, but we encourage others to participate in the music-making process. That's wonderful. And so we provide instruments, hand percussion instruments, uh, and whatever it is they're interested in playing. And we encourage them. We're not there to criticize. We're there to encourage them to be part of that music making, and it's proven to be very effective. Of course, I have seen it firsthand at multiple vet jams that I've been a part of, and I can see that um, these jams not only help the community members that are a part of it 
and the veterans that are part of it, but you as well. I can see that every time you have directed a vet jam, that there is a unique experience with it, correct? Yeah, there really is. There really is. Yes, yes. And and it is um, for everyone who participates, whether you're a participant or a team member or the founder, (laughs) as I am, it's beneficial to all of us. And every one of us in our music group can testify Mm -hmm. to the healing power of of music and, and the benefits you can get from it. What are some of the events hosted by Music Works for Veterans where veterans and families can participate? We have your more in-house type music jams, as I mentioned, Washington Mm -hmm. Soldiers Home, American Lake VA Hospital. Those are fairly limited. However, we can have guests come in. Often families will participate as well, and they'll be there to support their beloved veterans. And and so it becomes a whole family event in, in, Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And then we also have community-based events, which brings in Sound Vet Jam. Mm -hmm. Vet Jam is a more accessible music jam to our veteran community. And those events, all skill levels are accepted. And we encourage participation. And those opportunities rest with Lacey Veteran Services Hub, where we have a monthly music jam there. And you've joined us on several occasions there. And, Many occasions. <laughs> and uh, also Lakewold Gardens here mm-hmm. in Lakewood, Washington. And that's also a monthly event. But those are two main community-based events that give opportunities for veterans looking for a fun, stress-free, casual event that they can come and join fellow veterans and community members yeah. to participate in the music making and friendships will grow from that and trust grows from that and storytelling which also leads to um, at these jams we not only play cover tunes popular cover tunes that we'll all learn and play together we do off the cuff jams we'll Mm -hmm. have these really cool warm-up jams that we do and everybody gets into it yeah and um the yellow rose of texas yeah exactly yeah yellow rose um, of texas is a big one what's another one ring uh, of fire ring of fire ring yeah of fire. We, we could go on and on we yep. have many of them <laughs> yeah yeah but those are some of the more popular ones that uh, yeah. everybody likes to jump in on and um, you also do larger events right so upcoming in the summer you guys might go to the um festivals or the actual fairs that are occurring Correct? Yes. So that is part of our whole three ring circus. We we have, as we mentioned before, we have the in-house jam events. Mm-hmm. We have the community-based jam events. Yep. We have outreach events that we do. And those outreach events, you know, include things like the Washington State Fair in Puyallup, yeah. where we will host an information booth and the Music Works for Veterans Band will play to get the word out and share what we do. How and many times have you been a part of the fair? This year, the September, I think will be our eighth year of doing that. Yeah, so we'll have the booth in the exhibition hall, and we'll also have the band performing at the showplace stage. That's wonderful. And so we get to, at the booth, we get to promote the band playing, and then individuals that will come down to hear us play, and they'll find out that they really like what we're doing, and often we're connecting with other veteran-serving nonprofit organizations, Mm -hmm. and they become interested, and then all of a sudden, they're like, Will you guys come play at our nonprofit event this summer, our family barbecue or a fundraiser? And so often they'll have budgets that they'll pay the band to play and we'll put that money back into Music Works for Veterans. And it's just really great dynamic. What recent events or activities stand out 
for you with MusicWorks Veterans and its participants? Well, there's a lot that stands out. Um, <laughs> there, there's so much because every music jam brings forth a new experience, mm. a new face, a new story being shared. But most recently at our Lacey Veterans Hub Jam, was it two months ago, I think it was, uh, actually in the last one, uh, everyone. Oh, <laughs> so many. We start out with introductions. Mm -hmm. uh, whenever, it's particularly if somebody new shows up, we'll go around and we'll briefly introduce ourselves. And, mm -hmm. and with those introductions, there are snippets of our own personal experiences that are shared. Um, yeah. Some of them are military related and some are not. Uh, it could be just maybe a, even a personal struggle or a story about how uh, someone overcame uh, a difficult time in their life. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of open up and we take time for that in our jams. We take time to let people express themselves and, and tell their stories. And oftentimes those stories will translate into new original songs. And Just then, like Jerry's, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and with that, um, there's a healing process that takes place. And this is something that I always have to come back to and remind people that we're not just going there playing music. This is a healing experience, and it's about sharing stories. And those stories, when you take them and you work them into the songwriting process, it becomes very therapeutic uh, yeah. in the way you're establishing that friendship and that trust. Then you share the story, and then and then from there, it just it's organic. It just kind of it just kind of feeds itself from there. And the whole songwriting process, um, in a lot of ways, prepares people um, because they're able to express themselves now right. through song and music that they begin to socialize more. They leave the end of the driveway more often. They seek out these fun social activities that all come together around music yeah, and, and friendship. Exactly. Just being a part of it for eight months alone, I have seen that we have grown. I mean, Music Works has grown within this year. We've gone to Ording now, the tiny villages. We mm -hmm. also worked with the Cowlitz tribe. And each of these members, each of the veterans that we work with, all have their own stories. Specifically with the Ording home, when we went out there, I noticed that those veterans, they, they didn't expect people to come out there, you mm -hmm. know? And when we were there, their faces lit up. And they yes. were happy to finally see people. And I saw that you provided guitars for the home so that they had materials out there when we left. So that way, when we left, they didn't feel alone. And then moving forward, now, next Sound Vet Jam, we're going to be performing Jerry's song. And this is his personal song about his time in Vietnam. Yeah. And how about let's just talk a little bit about what that story is. Well... It goes back to where um, several years where uh, Jerry's daughter, Marie, had found a, a poem that he had wrote many, many years ago. She held on to it, I believe, about 25 years with the idea that she was going to do something special with it. Wow. And she knew I wrote you. songs. And mm -hmm. she contacted me on the day before Memorial Day asking me if I could write music to it because she wanted to surprise her, her father with it. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'd be honored to, to try it. And um, I said, when would you like to have this ready by? Can you have it back to me by tomorrow? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, my goodness, the time I'm frame like, for that. Okay, send it on over. I'll see what I can do. Yeah. And, and so I recorded the song like within because when I read something and I start to hear melodies, if I'm inspired by it. I recorded it on my iPhone and I 
Um, sent it on over. So, <laughs> it's all good. So um, I sent it to her, and she really liked it. She presented it to her, her father. Mm-hmm. And his, his first response was, it had been so long ago, he had forgotten about writing that poem at first. He's like, who's that? Who wrote that? And and uh, <laughs> anyway, it's a, it's a really profound song called Dear Katie, I Hate You. And, and it's, it's about nightmares he had about incoming Russian-made rockets in Vietnam. But when he wrote that poem, his nightmare stopped. So there's something about putting that into that tangible medium mm-hmm. and getting it out of your mind, whether it's through music or writing poetry, uh, because the song started as a poem. And, and that, that really has, it, it allows you to cope in a way yeah. and to release and put a stop to some, in his case, nightmares. Exactly. He still had thoughts about what Vietnam looked like, right? But he had gone through a trip back to Vietnam and realize yes. the differences yeah. now. Uh, I could continue on with that story if you like, because <laughs> yeah. it, it's very amazing. So after we did the song, Dear Katie, I Hate You, and performed it at the soldier's home in front of the senior veterans that reside there, it was very, very amazing how so many people that we know out there how who could relate to his story. Right. And that's kind of what Jerry adapted as well as, as the mindset that, I can share my stories and and who knows, maybe others can relate to it and benefit from it as well. Then we moved on to song number two, where he sent me lyrics for another song called Everyone is Insane. And we worked together on that. And I taught it to my band and we started performing it with him. And so now he's got a second song, which we have performed all over the place. We, it, we've entered it in the uh, Veterans Administration's uh, awards, National right? Veterans Creative Arts Festival. Yeah, it actually won a first place ribbon uh, for the state of Washington. Wow. But, you know, we're not about the awards in that. Mm, it's no. nice to be able to use that as a, I guess, something under the belt that helps us Show. get even more yeah. recognition for the work that we do. Uh, with veterans and the music. And uh, Jerry, he served in Vietnam when he was 21 years old. He had never returned until after the surprise trip his family gave him to go back to Vietnam at the age of 70. After he had joined Music Works for Veterans and was now at this point working on song number three, the participation in Music Works for Veterans events, the songwriting process, in part prepped him to get out there, socialize more, and it was very instrumental in his preparation for flying back overseas to Vietnam and making that trip, which in turn became a very healing experience. I'm so happy to have heard Jerry's story from you as well as Jerry himself, you know, um, because those stories need to be heard. And I know that many people don't get the chance to listen to veterans and really understand what they've gone through Mm -hmm. and if they have there's always newer perspectives always different ones um so with that what inspired you and led you down the path that brought you to all of this oh wow um going back a ways here i've always had music in my life my parents were musicians they hosted all of the live jam parties at our house so i grew up around music and witnessed the fun that they were having with Mm -hmm. music and um, with with the struggles that I had personally. That was the fun element that I always remember. 
and was inspired to follow mm. after. And so uh, at a very young age, uh, when I was 14, I started teaching myself to play guitar. And I was always the, you know, the kid who learned those really cool rock and roll riffs on the radio. And, yeah. and that's about all I would learn was a riff uh, because something always compelled me whenever I'd strum a chord and, and start playing something, I felt compelled to write something of mm. my own. So at a very young age, I started writing songs. That just became a part of what I did. It was it was my still do. It was not not thinking of it as therapy or anything like that. It was just it became a natural process of me personally working through my own issues. Yeah. It was my medium for emotional expression. How many songs do you have? <laughs> Oh my gosh! Uh, com- I know complete songs. Yeah, yeah, nearly three hundred. Oh yeah. man! Yeah. Can you tell us maybe one or two specific songs that have stuck out to you throughout the ages? Um, well, you know, a lot of them uh, because my my writing technique is is kind of I take different approaches. Um, I have a lot of experience with um, writing songs to others' poetry. I will read something if I'm inspired. Like Darius. The music will come. Yep. Many written of my own lyrics, but when I do write my own lyric, it'll include experiences and people and What's happenings. Uh, it, yes. In it, the world. That, that kind of all tie in with it. But one of the most impactful songs that and, and memorable songs that I've written is a song called Trust. And that's a song as a parental struggle that I had with my adult son who was struggling with addiction and homelessness and mental illness. And uh, so I call it my Al-Anon song. It's my therapeutic song from a parent's perspective, laying home at night, sleeping wide awake, eyes wide open, worried about, you know, is he okay? And, And that sort of thing. And the song brought me to the conclusion that all the excessive worrying was was not doing me any good and it was not healthy for me. It's my Al-Anon song. It, it's, mm. it's about you can't control everything. Sometimes you just have to give it up to God mm-hmm. and you just have to let go of those reins and, and just pray for the best and, um, and hope that he'll come home someday. Right. So that's what trust is all about. Yeah. And it's songs like that that I would share, for example, at Washington Soldiers Home to our senior veterans there, which would inspire others to take the microphone and share their own story. Uh, for example, Trump? Doug, at one point, after I introduced that song and sang it for them, added that he could really relate to the song because after his traumatic brain injury, he had a really difficult time and he struggled from addictions, but he had a difficult time accepting the fact that he wasn't going to be the same again. No. And that's what he had to do. He had to lift it up and he had to let it go and, and accept things. I think that's a lot of the mission for Music Works for Veterans. When we come to these events together, we tell our stories and we know that they've occurred. Yes. And that it's a part of us but it's also not going to keep us there. And it's about working together and hearing each other's stories and figuring out how we can all collectively help each other. Yes. And your song, Trust, as well as a lot of the other songs that you've just 
played and performed for Music Works for Vets, I've continued to listen to on my own time because I think it's inspiring and also it tells your story. Oh, well, that's great to of hear. Oh, thank you. And, you know, there's there's so many things coming up with Music Works for Vets as a whole. But are there any upcoming events in store that you might want to talk about? Uh, yeah, we got um, with, you know, COVID's not over, obviously. It has put a, uh, a damper on on some of our regular events that we have, but we are able to continue with our music jam at Lacey. We're able to continue with our monthly jam at Lake Wold Gardens. We're looking at confirming the Washington Soldiers Home uh, to have the Music Works for Veterans Band play for their 4th of July celebration. Oh, that is wonderful. Uh, because we get to play outdoors for that. And so that's, that's yeah. a bit safer, you know. Mm-hmm. And the Puyallup Fair is coming up in September. Mm-hmm. And uh, Summerfest in Lakewood, that's also in July. There you go. So, anyway, I could go on and on yeah. because we're starting to add events again. Exactly. And, and we're really excited to be able to get back out there again. And uh, yeah, just go to musicworksforveterans.org and go to the events calendar and you'll see what's happening. You'll see each event there. Yeah. And then, lastly, to follow up, what are the future goals of Music Works for Veterans? To become our own 501c3 entity. Yes. And as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're still part of the Veterans Family Fund of America, and they've been awesome. Love those guys. They've been very supportive of everything that we do. But there's a time where grow. any project will grow wings that's and right. fly from the nest, and that's what they like to support. And, that's wonderful. And so for, to, for them to allow us to operate 10 years under their oversight um, this coming fall is oh has been very gracious of them. And after that, we'll be looking to find a home base where we can have a, a facility, facility where we can keep all of our equipment to have have a jam room so we can have additional jam opportunities. Private lessons, possibly. Le- music lessons. Right. Just peer support. Right. And um, and I'm, I need to add to that, we do know music therapists and we have their support, music therapists and art therapists. And mm-hmm. and I do have to mention Brenda Maltz. Yes. Uh, she's, she's an art therapist who has been, she calls herself the Music Works for Veterans groupie. And, <laughs> but she has been awesome and very supportive in helping us connect with the community as you have been. And, oh, thank you. And those relationships. Yeah. But so we can bring people into this facility and have have in-house events. And soon we're hoping to have video lessons online with additional teachers. That, that is actually happening right now. Right now. And, and, yep. and with, with uh, in, in, in a large way with your support, providing piano lessons. Piano lessons. <laughs> and so, yes, uh, that's a new added menu on our website and it's there now. And we're just in the process of uploading instructional videos for Guitar, keyboard. Specific um, songs, um, maybe? Yes, and and we'll include songs that'll help veterans, new participants, refer to uh, to learn these new songs that we jam to just to kind of help get them into the groove of things. Right. And so um, it's going to be an awesome tool. And then the the last uh, thing is is, uh, we would love to be able to get a passenger van that we could use to help get veterans to and from our events, and also to be able to, when we do the larger special events where we, for example, have these big outdoor events, these jams, like at Mm -hmm. Lakewood Summerfest, 
And I also need to mention that all the great support we've gotten from organizations like Artswa and, and National Endowment for the Arts. Oh, yes. And they supplied us with a grant that mm. helped us acquire equipment that we were able to put on our first music jam at the Lakewood Playhouse and also our first open music jam mm-hmm. on the waterfront at Tacoma's Freedom Fair. Oh, my goodness. And, and you can find event videos for your Lakewood Playhouse, right, on the website? Yes. Well, we're continuing to add video oh, okay. uh, to But, yes, the, the, the Lakewood Playhouse jam, you'll see some footage right along with uh, that ties in with uh, Jerry's. Jerry's. There story you go. And That's his right. interview. So, That's wonderful. Yeah. And, and like we said earlier, everything connects um, very closely and works together. It really and, does. And, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, John. And you can find the following that we have talked about on the website again at musicworksforveterans.org. Is there any last thing you want to say? I just want to thank you and I want to thank all these veteran serving organizations that have been so supportive of nonprofit projects and organizations like ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really helps to to um, have a community. Yes, because a lot of a lot of people that start these really beneficial projects, a lot of times it's veterans serving veterans. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of us guys are, we're flying by the seat of our pants, you know. But, you know, that works too. I mean, right. because it's such a natural, organic process, the way things evolve. And it's very effective. But you have to bring it into an organizational fashion at one point or the other. And and so organizations like yours helping us along and connecting us with other veteran-serving organizations mm-hmm. and just helping to grow the community so that we can all come together and work together to help support serve. our fellow veterans and, and their families. That's right. Serve the ones that have served. Well, thank you, John. You have been a tremendous leader in the arts as well as arts for military itself. So it's wonderful to have you on the show, and we look forward to seeing you at future events as well as with Artswa. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Creative State. I hope you enjoyed these conversations as much as we enjoyed putting them together. You can learn more about the work that we do at arts.wa.gov. Thank you again, and I hope your days are full of creativity and discovery.